You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Episode 77. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, broadcasting, as always, from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. Well, this is part two of our business immigration series with my special guest, Jeffrey Lowe. Last episode, we talked a little bit about some of Jeffrey's favorite vehicles from an immigration perspective that he likes to use when he has uh, clients looking to find a way to Canada through some of the business immigration programs. In this episode, we're going to dive into a little bit more of um, an individual assessment when you're actually approaching your clients. Uh, Jeffrey shares some amazing insight on the approach he takes when he's trying to match his client with the particular business immigration program. So he starts off, With analyzing his client, he shifts into some of the best investment vehicles that are available, uh, whether it's buying shares, whether it's buying the business outright, starting from scratch, starting a franchise. It's just really amazing. And the thing that you definitely want to sit around for and wait is the case studies. Now, those are the things that I found were some of the most valuable insights because he takes a real-life scenario and shows us how he applies um, the facts of his particular client situation to the availability of their programs. And that matching is really where the rubber hits the road. And then he gives some really good practical tips um, for, uh, for just you know um, avoiding some of the pitfalls and just understanding some of the more nuanced aspects of this process that you're just not going to find anywhere else. So this one's a little bit longer. Yes, you need to set aside a little bit of time, but it is awesome. I know you're going to love it, so let's jump into part two of the Business Immigration uh, Series with Jeffrey Lowe. Well, I'm back once again with Jeffrey Lowe, immigration lawyer practicing out of Vancouver, BC, uh, with Lowe & Company. This is part two in our Business Immigration Options to Canada series, and uh, this one we're going to be focusing a little bit more on how to invest in a business in Canada. And I can tell you, this is an episode you guys are not going to want to miss. Uh, You're going to want to listen to every ounce of it because it is chock full of just some amazing content. And Jeffrey's going to conclude with some extremely valuable uh, case scenarios. And as most of you know, when you're practicing, uh, sometimes you just need to see how other lawyers have uh, have utilized the various immigration programs in creative ways. And that's exactly what Jeffrey is going to be sharing with us today. So thanks so much, Jeffrey, for, for coming back to join us for part two. Great. Good afternoon. Good morning, everyone, wherever you happen to be. And thanks, Mark, for having me to share part two of business immigration options for business people. 
Today, we're going to talk about how to invest in a, into a business in Canada, specifically with immigration in mind. Now, Mark, over the years, I've noticed that there's three general kinds of entrepreneur Im immigrant clients that I meet. The first kind is the optimist. They're really confident they're going to make money. They're usually very successful in their home country, and they can believe they can do the same thing in Canada. But perhaps they're not fully cognizant of the realities, for example, the size of the market that we talked about in session one. <clears throat> and in a province like Saskatchewan, there's only one million people. And if you compare that to uh, other major cities with 5 million, 10 million people or more, you'll find that it's, it's quite different. But nonetheless, optimists are often sold on some business idea in which other than a consultant, a business broker, or even a friend has presented to them that makes sense. The second kind is of immigrant entrepreneurs are the pessimists. They're convinced it's impossible to make money by investing in Canada. All their friends have lost money, maybe their relatives have lost money, and even their immigration consultant tells them they can invest a hundred or two hundred thousand or whatever, but they won't get anything back. So for these immigrants, they're not investing to make money, but they're investing not to lose too much money. And in a way, I guess, Jeffrey, in a way, that that grouping of individuals, we touched on this uh, a little bit in uh, in our part one here of our uh, of these episodes. But that group of individuals is kind of wired to see the process as, as somewhat like the old investor program where you're going to give the money if it's financed and it's just a loss. Like you're, you're, you're still in a way buying your way into Canada, at least to the point where you can get your permanent residence. It seems to me like they kind of fit into that category. Very much so. <clears throat> and people think that in order to immigrate, you're going to have to pay. They're going to have to lose. But that's their that's their mindset and their paradigm shift. Their, their paradigm. <clears throat> but there's a third kind of immigrant, and these are what I call the realists. They've had successful business experience overseas, but they recognize in Canada they're at a disadvantage. And the lead advisors and the lead knowledge to level the playing field. They realize they don't know it all, but are willing to invest their time and money to research and learn about businesses. And then when they choose a business, how that business makes money <clears throat> and what, what are the risks, what are the potential rewards, and then make a decision, a business decision. And these entrepreneurs are the entrepreneur immigrants most likely to succeed. And the ones we most likely want to have as clients. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, Mark, one of the uh, one of the things that I believe we, truth be told, a lot of our clients are pessimists. They be they begin with preconceived notions, saying, uh, you know, it's impossible to make money, but I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to lose money for the sake of my family and my future and so on. But 
what we want to do is we're going to take clients and give them a paradigm shift. If we can provide them with information and empower them, we can turn the number two pessimists into realists and hopefully uh, successful business immigrants. So what we're going to do today is we're going to do five things. Firstly, we're going to go through the process of, of investing in Canada with immigration in mind. Secondly, we'll talk about four ways that foreign nationals can invest in Canada and the pros and cons of each. Thirdly, we'll talk about how to find business opportunities in each of these four ways. Fourthly, we'll look at some case studies of clients that we've been able to help from all different parts of the world. And fifthly, uh, we'll have some practical business, practical tips for business immigrants investing in Canada. So, with that as a background, uh, let's start on section one. Uh, the process of investing in Canada. And here, Mark, uh, what I'd say is it's like a generally a four-step process. Analyze your background, determine your objectives. Thirdly, dream. If immigration wasn't an obstacle, what would you like to do in Canada and when? And fourthly, shift your paradigm to assess your immigration options. So firstly, <clears throat> analyze your background. First, and you look at what are your assets. Assets are not just financial assets. There's your education and your skills. It's your experiences overseas or wherever and successes. It's contacts you have. Abroad, uh, abroad. So, for example, we'll talk about this in one of my case studies about a client that had a network of uh, food in the food distribution business in China, and how we're able to capitalize on that. Contacts in Canada. Do you have family? Do you have relatives? Do you have friends um, in Canada who will be able to work with? Your personality and disposition. Those can be very, uh, very important because the ability to persuade people, the ability to connect people, connect the dots, that's a very valuable asset. And finally, things you're passionate about. So what we like to do with people is explore their assets and draw out from them things that they didn't even know about themselves. Secondly, what are your liabilities? Liabilities are more than financial. They, they can be personality and disposition as well. They can be assets or liability. They could be negative experiences. So those are things, uh, different kinds of baggage, which import, it's important to realize and recognize in the process of figuring out what you're going to do in Canada. And thirdly, what are other constraints? Some some clients say, well, I need to be able to spend half my time abroad because I still have business interests uh, overseas to take care of. I have family to take care of or so on. That's a constraint. Secondly, uh, children or family members to care for. 
I have some clients with autistic children or with some level of developmental difficulty, disabilities. Those are constraints which may hinder them in doing certain kinds of businesses and language. This is a big one depending on where you're coming from. Not so much from the U.S. or Australia, uh, but it may well be if you're coming from China or India or so on. Well, Indians are not too bad. So first step is analyze your background. Secondly, determine your objectives. When do you want to settle in Canada? The most common answer, I don't know about you, Mark, but almost every client that I have, that I meet with, they say they want to come as soon as as possible. possible. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that, yeah. But, you know, when you really explore uh, what they want, they want to get the visas as soon as possible, but they don't necessarily want to come here. Yeah, they don't necessarily want to travel, yeah. I just had a, I met with a client last week from Malaysia, and he has a pretty substantial business in the oil oil industry in Malaysia. And I said, when do you want to come? He said, well, I want to come right away. Can we get, when, we can, when can we get started? I said, okay, well, we could probably bring you over here in about three months. Oh, uh, that's a bit soon. <laughs> and, uh, okay, when would you really like to come? Well, when my when my son is six years old, how old is he now? He was just born. <laughs> okay, so really need to think what is your objective? When do you want to come to Canada? Come to Canada. Secondly, where would you like to settle in Canada? As we discussed last week or, or in the last episode, we talked about different provincial immigration programs. And my two favorite are British Columbia and uh, Ontario because of the market and so on. But there are all sorts of other uh, programs if you're interested in specific things in Nova Scotia, in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and so on. And would you consider rural communities? Because if you're willing to live in a community with less than 50,000, 40,000, 30,000 people, uh, it's sometimes easier to immigrate there than to immigrate to what we call MTV, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. And I guess to a large extent, yeah, and to a large extent, Jeffrey, I guess it's a decision. Do I want to have the greatest opportunity to, to be profitable and to make money? Or is what, you know, I'm willing to make a little bit of a sacrifice um, just for the quality of life I can offer to my family. And so you have to assess that. Very, um, very true. Which, uh, which brings us to the third uh, question and your objectives. How much money do you want to make? Well, uh, uh, you would want to look at how much are you willing to invest in Canada? What are you willing to do? Are you willing to work 50, 60 hours a week? Um, and what kind of business would you like to do in Canada? So in the process of determining your objectives, you look at when, where, and uh, what you want to make. <clears throat> and And that helps focus your thinking of what kind of 
opportunities you like. So after you've, after you've analyzed your background, and after you've determined your objective, thirdly, I, I, I like to get people to dream. And I say, if immigration was, wasn't an obstacle, what would you like to do in Canada and when? And sometimes people say, well, I'd like to come back. I'd like to come to Canada and I'd like to do an MBA. Or I'd like to come to Canada and I'd like to go into the food business. Or I'd like to go into Canada and uh, do some uh, manufacturing in the technology industry. Or I'd like to start a website. So given your background, determining your objectives, you can think about what your uh, what you'd like to do in Canada and when. And once we've done that, then we can help assess your immigration options. And sometimes this requires a paradigm shift. So you're not the optimist without a foundation. You're not the pessimist, pessimist again, without foundation, but you're a realist. Let's look at what's before you. So that's a bit about the process of how we go about analyzing a business immigrant. Let's turn to the next section, four ways to invest into a business and uh, for immigrants to invest into a business. You can buy a business. You can buy shares in a business. You can start a franchise business or you can start your own business. And each one of those, those four ways, have got different profiles for risk, startup time, difficulty to start, and potential return. So my, my recommended course for uh, a lot of people is to buy a business. This is the quickest and easiest way to establish a business in Canada because an existing business already has things in place. They've got cash flow, they've got products or services, they've got an office or business premises, they have a customer base, they have experienced staff, they've got reputation, goodwill, and a track record, which can be verified by financial statements and income tax returns. So in short, none of the, much of the risk of the unknown can be mitigated with good and professional advice. So buying a business is a great option for a lot of immigrants. And from a Canadian perspective, there's many Canadian business owners that are looking to retire. So for example, uh, the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce uh, did a survey of uh, a number of small businesses a number of years ago. And they said that there was nearly 550,000 small to medium-sized businesses with $3.7 trillion in business assets. And these owners were set to retire by 2022. Many of their children aren't interested in taking over the family business, leaving the parents struggling to find a buyer or even close down. If the small to medium-sized business owners 
can find, can offer the businesses for sale to business immigrants, they'd have more potential buyers and a better chance of selling the business at a reasonable price. And that makes a lot of sense, Jeffrey, because, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a small town kid. I grew up on a farm <clears throat> and I look at a lot of the smaller communities, you know, stretched all across Alberta and really across Canada where there's an aging population, just like you've identified the, the owners, uh, you know, the parents of a family run business, whether it's a farm or whether it's the, you know, the downtown restaurant in, in, in the town and they're looking to retire and there's no one to sell it to. And they've got all of their assets invested in this business with the hope of selling it as, as a part of their retirement strategy and, uh, and not having anyone that's interested in purchasing it. And it may be a very, very successful little business. It might be, uh, you know, something that an investor would be interested in. It's just the issue of, you know, being in a smaller community. So I personally feel like this is a really, really good opportunity for, um, for immigrants and individuals who are looking to invest and, and really come and live in Canada who really are interested in, in you know, leaving their, their, their home and, and making Canada their home. I, th I see this as a real, um, a real opportunity to connect those businesses, uh, provided, provided that that, uh, that, that um, future permanent resident knows what they're getting into. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a very good point, Mark, that you made about smaller communities. <clears throat> um, because interestingly enough, about 60%, over 60% of all immigrants to Canada uh, settle in large cities, specifically MTV. Uh, and so if you are in, uh, if you are in a smaller town, like Lethbridge, for example, <clears throat> um, actually, <laughs> tell you the truth, Mark, I haven't been to Lethbridge before. You haven't. But, oh, this is a thriving metropolis, and it's actually the center of Canada, Jeffrey. Maybe you weren't aware of that. Okay. <laughs> well, Mark, being settled, being centered in Lethbridge, you know that community there. But you know, <clears throat> but you know, there's op I'm sure there's opportunities for business people who'd like to retire uh, to to sell their businesses. So that's that's the first way. The second way to uh, to invest into a business is to buy shares in a business. If possible, this is often the best solution for businesses that are, are a little bit bigger. The business immigrant can acquire a stake in the Canadian business, learn about the way to do business in Canada, learn about the business, and over time, eventually, buy out the business or also sell it to a third party. This requires a lot of trust between the existing owners and the business immigrant. And in some cases, the owner, owner just wants to retire, not be tied down to the business. So this is more for unique situations. But in one of my case studies, I'll share an example where we did just that. <clears throat> and it also Apparently, makes sense, too, for kind of getting your training wheels off, too, when you're starting a business. It's one thing to buy and then have it turned over completely to you. And as another thing to make some arrangements so that the current owner can, you know, can kind of teach you in the ways of, of, uh, of business success, the way we do business in Canada and, and really help them to hit the pavement running and, and get those training wheels off sooner. And because uh, obviously how we do business in Canada is not always the same way that it's done in other countries. 
very much so. In fact, I'll have, it, I'll have an analogy uh, just to share the fourth uh, four examples uh, on investing and driving. Mm-hmm. But the third way to buy a business or to invest in the business in Canada is to start a franchise business. And one way to overcome many of the obstacles that foreign business immigrants face is to start a franchise business. A good franchise business will have established systems, manual, advertising, training for owner manual, owners and managers, and will usually give you a better chance of success in starting something from scratch. One uh, franchise website, frannet.com, they did a survey of North American franchise owners a few years ago and they found that 85% of franchisees that had consulted with them were still in business after five years, which is much higher than about 50% reported by Industry Canada for all businesses. Hmm. So starting a franchise business is not bad. However, Even 50%, I'll be honest, Jeffrey, seems high for just starting hmm. fresh. It, it can be challenging. Yes. But you know, for franchisees, a franchise, uh, uh, most established franchises have got stringent screening procedures, and often it's difficult for new immigrants to meet their qualifications. Um, and we've, we've helped people acquire franchises for fast food and uh, different things, and <clears throat> it takes time to go through the screening process, and it takes time to find a location. It takes time to do a build-out and so on. So it may well be a year between start and finally opening the store that you can actually open the store. Jeffrey, so there's some pros and cons to the franchise. Jeffrey, can you give an example of some of the barriers that they face when you know to, to, be, uh, to pass the screening process uh, for, for purchasing... Um, a franchise like are is is there something commonly that comes up that most you know or a lot of immigrants would would face like i'm sure I'm maybe putting it <clears throat> putting you on the spot here a little bit but i'm just wondering you know what what are some of those barriers sure not a problem number one uh, is language mm. when you buy a franchise you end up representing the brand and if you don't speak english well then that affects the branding of the whole brand. Or if you don't, uh, if you're not a good operator, again, that affects the branding of the whole brand. Mm-hmm. And a good franchise is going to be concerned about the hundreds or thousands of franchises which <clears throat> will be their representatives. Secondly, um, franchisees are concerned about uh, work permits whether you have a work permit or whether you have permanent resident status. And a work permit uh, is typically only good for one to two years, maybe three years. And the franchisor may well say, well, what happens if your work permit doesn't get renewed? Well, the franchisee may lose some money, but the franchisor may have a lot more to lose if they have to close down a store. Mm-hmm. So, and then there's the usual financial due diligence, 
do you have any credit rating? And again, a lot of new immigrants won't have yes. credit ratings in Canada. So uh, just a number of practical so that makes sense. Things. Uh, and, um, you know, I had, I had one client of mine, very interesting. He owned five franchises of this particular fast food, uh, uh, fast food sandwich shop. He wanted to sell them off one by one to immigrants. The head franchisor turned down probably at least eight or nine potential buyers saying, okay, no, this guy doesn't have experience. This guy doesn't have good English. This guy doesn't have assets in Canada and so on. Extremely frustrated for the Canadian franchise owner. But but, uh, anyways, it happened. However, having said that, for the right situation, it can work. And then lastly, um, the last way to buy investing in business is to start your own business. Now, given the failure rates of new businesses for Canada, is about 50%, might even be a bit more, as Mark mentioned, within the first five years, had additional handicaps like language, culture, business norms, and other things. It can often be very risky for a foreign business person to set up a new enterprise on their own. They need to decide on a business, find premises, negotiate a lease, recruit and hire staff, figure out how much to pay, as well as general business plan and so on. Uh, it can be quite challenging. Again, um, not impossible, and we'll talk about this in our case studies, but uh, it's, it's by far the most difficult. So I give the analogy of driving a car. And so you can look at the four different ways to invest in a business, like driving a car. To start a business from scratch is like starting a car. It takes a lot of effort and gas to get it moving. There's a lot of inertia. You can imagine being outside the car and trying to push it to get it going. Extremely difficult, time-consuming. I'm gonna I'm gonna add in one little element to your uh, to your example here. Let's say it's mm. it's it's a car in the midst of an Alberta winter. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's a that's a very good point because <laughs> if you're at what twenty degrees, thirty degrees below zero, yeah, or or forty, <laughs> then try starting 40. that car. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That will be pretty scary. So uh, getting a, starting up a business from scratch can be kind of challenging. Second is buying a franchise is like being in the driver's seat with a driving instructor beside you. You're in control, but you've got systems and guidance along the way. So that's not too bad. That works. To buy all of a business is like stepping into the driver's seat when the car is already moving. So driver jumps out and you jump in, but you don't know how to drive. <laughs> so you need to learn by trial and error. Um, and you might crash, you might bump into things, but at least the car is already moving. 
But the best situation for many business immigrants, if it's possible, is to buy shares in a business. And that's like sitting in the passenger seat while someone else is driving. You have time to learn, watch, and eventually take over the driver's seat. But those situations are uh, are more difficult to find. Yeah, and then now I'm going to add another level. Now I'm envisioning me in the driver's seat and my wife beside me, and we're trying to determine the best way to get to <laughs> our destination. And uh, yeah. obviously that's an added element of complexity to these types of uh, share acquisition deals. You know, who's the boss? Who's driving the ship? And what if uh, people have differing ideas as to how to get to the end result? And so those are that adds another level of complexity. Yes, very true. Who your partner is is really important. <clears throat> so now let's turn to the next section. We'll talk about uh, some business possibilities <clears throat> in uh, in these different uh, in these different areas of uh, four different areas of investing into a business. Um, one, what businesses are for sale? Well, there's a number of different ways you can look for businesses for sale. Number one, you can go to websites. <clears throat> and then you can do that while you're overseas. And it's good to do some research and homework on different websites to see what's available and get an idea of, of uh, what is for sale and what things cost and so on. So how do they access these resources, uh, Jeffrey? You, you know, do you just um, Google or are there <clears throat> specific industry uh, websites, um, you know, where businesses well, there, are able to advertise? There's a number of different websites you can find. If you just Google, you can probably find uh, businesses for sale in all across Canada. And, uh, and one of the things after when I do a consultation is I will send people websites where they can look and see these are different businesses, websites with businesses for sale. Mm -hmm. And some have got businesses available for 60, 70,000. Others have got businesses for two to three million or more. So it really depends. But you can find lots of things on the web. However, uh, uh, number two is to go through brokers. Mm -hmm. And you need to do this in conjunction, uh, uh, in conjunction with uh, your website research and so on. So, for example, I just, um, uh, I just looked at a business the other day, and I have a client of mine who's looking at start, uh, buying over a catering business. So he... He found a catering business, and they're asking, I think it was about $588,000. Well-established sales of sale of about $1.5 million a year, and net profit of around $200,000 a year. So pretty good business. <clears throat> and, um, and so I happened to know the broker. I called up the broker, and I said, hey, uh, I'm I'm looking at this business that you've got on your website. What can you tell me about it? He says, oh, yeah, this, this is a very good business. He knows that he's known the business for the last five years or so. 
good, decent people, and so on. Uh, and uh, he told me we can get it for five hundred thousand, which is eighty-eight thousand dollars less than <clears throat> less than what was on the website. And if someone called or emailed uh, him off of the website, that's probably what he would have told them: be asking prices five hundred and eighty-eight. Mm-hmm. But when you work with a broker and you have a relationship, then you can often get to uh, uh, what the what the uh, owners are really willing to sell for. But you need to have that relationship and you need to have that trust because if somebody just called out of the blue, they're not going to tell them the bottom line. And for someone but who doesn't do a lot of the, you know, I, I'm not <clears throat> involved in a lot of buying and selling of businesses, but what is the average, you know, percentage that a broker takes? Uh, brokers, the sales commission that brokers will get will typically be around ten percent plus or minus mm-hmm. of the sale price, um, and uh, it can be as high as fifteen percent. It can be as low as five percent, but it depends on the nature of the business. <clears throat> so there's a significant commission. Uh, to the available to the broker, but then on the broker, on the broker's side, I mean, he's offering a business for sale, and he uh, he or she may be doing the due diligence on the business and doing the presentation package, and he may have to present the business to fifty potential buyers before he finally closes the sale on one. Right. We. Uh, Instead of say, you have to kiss a lot of toads in order to get a prince. <laughs> True, <clears throat> and and so, uh, but so a good broker is worth the commission, um, uh, but you need to find somebody who is good and trustworthy. So, how do you find a good broker? Well, the other way to do look for business for sale is to go through advisors. Now you could go through um, accountant or your lawyer uh, and ask them for potential businesses for sale. And sometimes the accountants or the lawyers have have their own clients that are looking to sell their businesses, <clears throat> and or they would know of other people um, who got businesses for sale. So. Uh, uh, that works as well. I'll th- discuss that in one of my case studies. Sometimes uh, the lawyer can negotiate with the broker because I've had relationships and dealings with brokers probably for over 15 years. And the level of rapport and trust that you have with the not only brokers, but other accountants and lawyers and so on, the, the level of trust that we have with them is such that uh, we can conclude, that we can negotiate much easier and faster and then determine whether or not it's something our, our clients might be interested in or if they'd be wasting their time. A number of years ago, Bill Gates wrote a book called Business at the Speed of Trust, and trust 
is a really important element in terms of when you're doing business. And if you are buying, you're coming from overseas and saying, I want to do, I want to buy a business, you don't have the time to build up the trust with potential companies or brokers or customers that you're looking at doing. So <clears throat> that's why I always suggest retaining professional advisors in the process early on is very important. That makes sense. Because there's also hidden opportunities um, because it's said that the majority of businesses for sale are not advertised for any, for any number of reasons, but there could be a lot of people wanting to sell their business someday, wanting to sell the business if the, if the right price came along. I can think of several right now who would be willing to sell it for a reasonable price, but um, uh, they don't want to advertise the business for sale. Otherwise, what will happen to the customers? What will happen to their employees? And so on. So trust and relationships are really important in, in trying to find a business for sale. And one last thing, a last area which is quite helpful is communities. So, for example, I'm a member of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Been a member of the Board of Trade for don't know how many years, uh, many years, um, and and there's other members that may be interested in selling their businesses. So, those may well be opportunities which uh, which uh, could be interesting to immigrant clients. So those are some ways to find businesses uh, available for sale. Um, secondly, finding businesses who need investors to buy part of the company. Here, you pretty much need to go through some sort of a professional advisor. Um, because uh, you need some sort of a trusted intermediary to be able to facilitate the the deal between the immigrant and the local business and be able to open the door to establish that trust relationship. There, but there's a few other alternatives uh, as well, which I'll mention, uh, primarily for the technology industry though. One are business incubators. Um, Business incubators are basically groups that help young businesses or fresh businesses start out and help them grow. Uh, generally, in the technology industry, generally riskier, um, there are some food incubation uh, groups that I've done work, work with in the past, um, but they take small businesses, startup businesses, and, <clears throat> and are looking for investors to help them along the way. There are, in different jurisdictions, there are business competitions. So, for example, there's something called, I think it's called New Ventures BC or something like that, which is like an annual competition for uh, for 
companies in the technology industry, and every year they got awarded. They do awards for people for everything from desalination plants to uh, to, uh, to uh, different types of technology things and so on. Uh, those are possibilities. Generally, they'll they're looking for more money, um, and while they might take two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars at the outset, eventually, if they scale up, they'll be looking for two to five million dollars with venture capital. But those are all some. Those are some ideas for people that need investors. Uh, thirdly, franchises. Uh, and as I mentioned, for franchises, it's important to find out if the particular franchise is willing to accept immigrants. And secondly, what are the timelines? Let me let me walk you through one of the timelines for uh, some of our clients. Yeah, that'd be, uh, that would be great. The, I think lots of people are wondering, okay, it seems like there's a lot of steps here and I wonder how many of my clients are going to be willing to to go through all these steps. But I obviously the steps are there for a reason, and you skip any of them can drastically reduce the likelihood of success with that business. So, yeah, please please go Very over that. So, so, so typical, and I ran this, I run through this with uh, at least three different franchises uh, in the last couple of years. <clears throat> Number one, you sign up the franchise agreement, uh, and you investigated a bunch of different franchises and you say, yep, I'd like to do an ABC coffee franchise. So they sign you up and you'll pay a franchise fee. Franchise fee is typically somewhere between say, generally around twenty five to thirty thousand, could be as high as fifty thousand, could be as low as ten thousand, but twenty five thousand uh, is a rough uh uh, a rough estimate for a franchise fee for a reasonably, uh, a reasonably established franchise. But when you sign up for the franchise, you usually don't have a location. After you sign up for the franchise, then the franchisor will then engage their real estate agents to look around for suitable locations. You can try to find your own location but if you do, it will normally have to go through their own vetting process. They will do things, everything from look at the neighborhood, are there hospitals, schools, businesses, uh, or residential? What's in the neighborhood within, say, a three or five kilometer radius? They will look at traffic counts. How many cars drive by this particular spot every day? And other sorts of demographic so it takes some time, and you, they may well have to assess five or more lo, potential locations before deciding on one. So fine, uh, you, find, you sign up with the franchise, then you do the, uh, then you found the location. After you found the location, then you need to do the build out, uh, and. Uh, this, again, depends on the location, but if you're building one from scratch, it can take probably three to eight months to do a build-out. 
Yeah, and that's, <clears throat> and that's an accurate estimate. Every single time I've tried to do any kind of a, a build out in the various offices I've had over the years, uh, if they've said, yeah, it should take about three months, you can pretty much guarantee that's going to be tripled. So, <laughs> so. It, 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 everything, some jurisdictions are worse than others. <clears throat> so, so for example, uh, in greater Vancouver, there's some municipalities which are business oriented and it's easy to get permits and so on. Whereas others, will drag things out for ages. Fine. I mean, I I met with one restaurant uh, franchisor who's developing, or franchisee who's developing a new franchise uh, in the noodle business a while ago. And then I said, okay, well, gee, it's taking you a long time to get this thing up and running. He says, yeah, Jeffrey, originally thought it was going to be three to four months. It's being now about 14 months and we're still not open. Oh my goodness. And that's and paying, for the, months. paying nice. for the lease. Now, was he responsible to, to cover the lease costs through that time throughout the yeah. build out? Oh well, my yeah, goodness. Yeah, I said, I, I said oh gee, goodness. your landlord must be pretty patient. He says, no, Jeffrey, I'm paying $8,000 a month just for rent and I can't open up my business. Wow. So he spent like, Hundred and ten thousand in rent, not to mention one hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand in improvements, and he hasn't been able to open up for business. Mm. So, those are some of the downsides. Now, that that could be for franchise, that could be for starting a business from scratch. But both of those are difficulties. The particular difficulty from an immigration standpoint. You know, last week when we talked about the Canadian business experience strategy, where you would first come to Canada, invest into business, and get a work permit. Well, when you apply for the work permit, the business needs to be up and operating. And if you need to wait a year and a bit to get the business up and operating, you won't be able to apply for your work permit till then. So... <clears throat> So uh, it's something that you really need to look at and determine, okay, well, uh, is this something you really want to do? So, uh, and lastly, I want to talk a bit about what kind of businesses can you start up. Uh, And, you know, there are all sorts of different opportunities available here. But you really need to be able to see with local eyes what the opportunities are. Um, I'll share with you a few examples. Food manufacturing. Um, There are certain kinds. I'm third generation Chinese Canadian. But there's certain kinds of Chinese food that I I really love. One of them is century eggs. Uh, uh, they're not really a hundred years old. Anyway, <laughs> I was gonna. The, uh, <laughs> I was thinking of the eggs that are buried in the ground and they're dug up, uh, <coughs> you know, for <laughs> three three months later or something. Yeah, but anyways, I love them. Except that most of them are from China or Taiwan uh, and so on. And you know, for various food safe reasons, I'd rather have them. Uh, 
if they were made in Canada. I would love to have somebody who who would like to manufacture those in Canada. Um, I have a Nigerian client who told me, hey, Jeffrey, uh, we loved jollof rice. I thought, okay, never heard of jollof rice. <clears throat> he says, yeah, this this would be great to uh, great to have in Canada if you can just buy it in the supermarket. Okay, um, yeah, there would be that. Apple pies. I love apple pies. <clears throat> and I will travel uh, 45 minutes to go from my home to West Vancouver to buy the best apple pies in Vancouver. They use organic apples, organic crust. It, it's not too sweet. It's not too tart. I love it. <laughs> but Why don't you but, give a shout out to the operation? Which one is it? Uh, it's called Savory Island Pie Company. Uh. <clears throat> it is wonderful. The problem is they don't sell it in retail stores. You got to fly out there. Uh-huh. Or you got to drive out. Drive out. But it's very good. And chicken pies. I I love chicken pies. <laughs> yeah, I like chicken uh, pies. <laughs> and you know, for food, food manufacturing, uh, there's so many things I love. Um, Lobster rolls in Nova Scotia, you can get lobster roll in San Francisco as well. You can get lobster rolls in Boston, and some of them will put a whole half pound, sorry, uh, one pound lobster meat into a bun with mayo and so on. Uh, there's, I think, two or three companies that make lobster rolls in Vancouver. They're not cheap, they're like 22 bucks. Oh my goodness! Uh, but you're making me hungry, these, Jeffrey. <laughs> you're so making me really hungry so, right now. <laughs> there are there are wonderful ideas that we can do for food manufacturing. Another thing is social enterprise. Um, uh, people think, well, what are, what is social enterprise? And social enterprises, basically, enterprises that are uh, involved in more than just uh, more than just making money. So, for so for example, in Greater Vancouver, um, there's uh, there's a rougher area of town called the Downtown East Side. <clears throat> um, a lot of homeless people, uh, drug addicts, and so on. However, um, it's also a place where uh, people, if there's hope, can come off the street. So one of the groups I work out, I work with is a group called Mission Possible, and they work to bring people off the street, clean them up, give them, uh, give them jobs, um, and it could be everything from graffiti re- removal to uh, street patrols to working in coffee bars and so on, and really uh, changing their lives. Uh, and I been one of the groups that I've supported for years. <clears throat> um, food delivery business in these uh, in uh, in this area yeah. is yeah. just being or at the time of this pandemic. I think yeah. food delivery companies uh, have I, I have uh, yeah, they're up, doing very very well. Busier. Yeah, they're doing yeah. very well. 
And another area is products that you can export, especially if you have a market overseas. Uh, and if you can manufacture something over here that you can export, that's, that's something that you can do. Uh, and okay, which is, uh, so now that's a good segue into the next section I like to talk about is some case studies because I can go through some live examples uh, of different things that we've been able to do uh, for different clients in these different areas. Okay. Uh, should we do some case studies now, Mark? Yeah, let's shift. And I think that would be really good to give some practical examples of, of how this has played out in your practice. And, you know, especially for some of the younger lawyers, they, you know, they can understand and they can read and they can learn the process from an immigration perspective or even from a business law perspective. But uh, where the rubber hits the road is is the practical application. And that's often not found in books. So these, these uh, you know, this insight that you share right now is super, super valuable. So please, yeah, share, uh, share some examples. Okay, okay um, a food wholesaler from Hong Kong. So our client was food wholesaling and distribution in Canada, in Hong Kong for probably 15, 20 years, something like that. His children were going to school in Canada and he and his wife decided to immigrate here. His English wasn't that great, but he had a wealth of business experience and contacts throughout uh, Hong Kong and China. So he came to me and said, okay, uh, Mr. Lowe, what can, I, I'm willing to invest into a business. I can invest half a million dollars or so. Uh, what, uh, what could we do? So he said, okay, did a bit of brainstorming. He said, Canada's got a very good reputation for quality food products. Yes. When you think of Canada, you think of mountains, streams, fresh, environmentally clean, and so on. So let's think of something to manufacture. Well, we helped him uh, develop a business concept to manufacture certain health food products to capitalize on BC and Canada's fresh, clean image. So specifically, we helped him develop the health food product ideas to manufacture. Secondly, um, uh, I helped him name the company and also uh, came up some branding and marketing ideas. Thirdly, I introduced him to the Regional Economic Development Office, who was more than happy to help him establish his food manufacturing business. Uh, next, uh, I helped him arrange meetings with potential suppliers. And since his English wasn't that great, uh, I accompanied uh, him uh, to those um, to those meetings and was able to facilitate some long-term supplier relationships. I introduced him to a food manufacturing consultant who then helped him with the food safe packaging, labeling, labeling requirements, and export requirements. And then the consultant then also helped him with equipment acquisition, leasehold improvements, and so on. Okay, on so I'm gonna side, I'm gonna jump in here and ask the question that all of us are wondering. So, how yeah. do you bill? So, is it just a flat fee, and these extra ancillary services are just kind of incorporated in with the the flat kind of fee that you bill, or do you, do you bill for these services on an hourly basis? 
Uh, we don't do it on an hourly basis, but um, let me see. I can't remember how I build, but but um, I build a basic fee. We did his did his immigration through the VC provincial nominee entrepreneur program, and we build a certain amount through the for the BC PNP work, and we build uh, build separately for. Uh, the business consulting development uh, development work. In uh, tell you the truth, I can't even remember how much uh, how much we build. It wasn't on an hourly rate a rate basis, but it was more on a uh, more on a package uh, package basis. Gotcha. And here's what we here's one of the things that we do. Um, we incorporate that into what I call the business planning because it's said if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. True. But when you have a business, when you are doing business planning and not just a business plan, you need to think through uh, the steps. What is it going to take in order to get this business to fruition? And um, the way I approach this, I'd say uh, the purpose is not just to get through IRCC. You can hire any consultant, uh, business plan consultant, to prepare a business plan which would likely satisfy uh, Immigration Canada's uh, requirements. But what, I, but what I like to do is I like to help clients plan for success. So they're not planning to just avoid losing money or avoid spending money. What they're planning on doing is they're planning to win. And the process lasts for weeks, but the business hopefully can last for years. Um, and, you know, I have a business background. I have a degree in commerce as well as a degree in law, but I like, tell people that going getting a commerce degree doesn't make you an entrepreneur any more than getting a law degree makes you into, makes you a lawyer what you need is the experience and the wisdom to be able to put all the pieces together so that's kind of what we do that makes sense and um, and with the business plan I mean each one is a bit different they, uh, I know that's a long answer, which doesn't really answer your question. But <laughs> but but what I can tell you is, it really is uh, uh, it really is individualized. Yeah, case specific. And, mm-hmm. and um, whenever we charge uh, charge fees, whether it be for legal work or consulting work, um, because I'm a business guy too, uh, I I want to make sure that whatever we're providing. Uh, to the client is what they need, what they want, and what they can afford. <clears throat> and so those are the kind of things we do. Now back to our Hong Kong uh, uh, food uh, wholesaler. He was able to use his contacts in the export market to open up markets for his health food products that many people wouldn't be able to do because they'd been dealing with these guys for 15 years. And when they came up with a brand new product, uh, a product line, 
he got market acceptance faster and was able to penetrate markets deeper than uh, most other people would. So when we think back to uh, the previous stage where we took inventory of our assets and liabilities, that we were able to lever that asset in in order for him to uh, succeed in his business. Uh, Now, I'll turn to another one. I had a client of mine who is a contractor, a building contractor, and materials trader from Indonesia. And he was a very experienced business guy. uh, And and he dealt with millions of dollars of uh, construction projects and uh, buying and selling mostly construction materials, but he didn't do well on his English test. He took it three times without success. Yeah. So what did we do? Firstly, but he said, Jeffrey, I want to come to Canada as soon as possible. Uh, Okay, fine. So he bought over a coffee franchise, an existing one, which is up and operating. So we didn't have to start from scratch. And then we got him an owner-operator work permit. Uh, there was some initial resistance from the Service Canada officer. They didn't have his experience. It was quite different. But so we were able to get him the initial work permit for one year. Before the year was up, we planned to renew the owner-operator work permit. And uh, a successful business, driving, uh, and so on. So this time we were able to get a two-year work permit. We also arranged to get him some English language uh, through doing, actually through Garrett Lim. <clears throat> and uh, after a couple of sessions with Garrett, who was able to increase his English language enough, so he finally got enough, scored enough points to come in under express entry. And I'm actually, I've reached out to Garrett and he's going to join me on a future uh, episode of the podcast uh, to re- reveal some of his some of his secret strategies on on getting people over that hump when they're struggling with uh, with the language. So I'm looking forward to that episode. Yeah, nice guy. <clears throat> so uh, that's so that's case number two. Case number three. Uh, oh, in case number case number one, we got on the BCPP program. Case number two, we got under the Express Entry. Case number three. Can I ask just a question, Jeffrey, just with that, with case number two, just to jump back Mm. to that one. So that was a hundred percent ownership. Is that, this was a a new startup where he acquired the existing, um, what was the nature of that uh, LMIA? Because I know they shifted, shifted gears on us a little bit in terms of what their requirements were. And I think we still don't have them entirely nailed down what they're looking for, for owner operators, but in, in those circumstances, um, those those LMIA-based work permits, he got the extra points that pushed him over the edge for express entry. But he he it was set up such that he was um, that uh, IRCC accepted the fact he was uh, an employee and eligible for those extra job offer points. Uh, you can get extra job offer points with the LMIA. The mm-hmm. issue is really more 
Canadian work experience mm-hmm. <clears throat> because uh, the Canadian, for example, the Canadian experience class can't be self-employed. Yep. It doesn't acknowledge self-employed work experience. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but we're okay because we didn't need those. Didn't need to have those. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, the third uh, example is a fellow. He was the vice president of finance uh, for a hospitality conglomerate in the Middle East. Very successful executive, hotel hospitality conglomerate in Egypt, and his English is fine for doing multi-million-dollar business deals. I think some close to hundred million dollars, I believe, but he wasn't good enough for Canada immigration. <laughs> so, what do we do? This one we tried an inter- did a multi-pronged strategy. Firstly, we helped his wife get an owner-operator work permit, and she bought over a small restaurant. Then we got an open spousal work permit for him, so which was uh, so then he could do whatever he wanted. Next, we applied on the BCPNP Entrepreneur Program for him to build and operate a larger franchise restaurant. And uh, that was interesting. Timing was very important because the BCPNP doesn't allow investments which uh, uh, which are more than, uh, sorry, which are made prior to the initial PNP approval. So it's a little bit tricky in terms of timing, but it took... I think close to a year to get the franchise approval and so on. So that gave us the time to get those. And finally, after we got the BCP, after we got his initial BCP and P approval, then we got PNP work permit and then permanent residence. Uh, I I think Mark, this illustrates one of the ways that we approach uh, helping immigrants. See, I don't uh, see different categories as ends in themselves. PNP entrepreneur, owner-operator work permit, uh, LMIA-based work permits, free trade work permit. To me, all those things are just tools to help our clients achieve their business or personal objectives. And it's up to us as the lawyer to use our skill to figure out how we're going to put all these things together to uh, help the client. And so one of the things I do is when I teach lawyers uh, business immigration, and I, as I tell them, there's two kinds of lawyers. One kind of lawyer is the McDonald's lawyer. The client comes to you and says, I know what I want. I want it fast and I want it cheap. And the lawyer says, yep, coming right up, sir. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And uh, that's one way to practice law. The second way is what I call the physician law approach. And with the physician approach, firstly, you examine the client and the client's spouse. And you see what are the assets we've got to work with? What are the liabilities we've got to work with? What are the preferences? What are the constraints? And knowing all of what we do about the system, we figure out how to put together all the different pieces to help our clients uh, achieve their business or immigration plan. And 
sometimes we do things completely unexpected. We will use study permits to bring clients over to get post-grad work permits, to get spousal work permits. We will use um, working holiday permits. We'll use significant benefit work permits. We'll use provincial nominees and express entry and so on. So it really depends on the client's situation because no client is, uh, is the same. And when a client says, I, I've done all the research online, I know what I want, I know what I need. Um, firstly, I think uh, we need to say, well, you might have other options, but uh, there's certain kinds of clients, if they believe that they know it all, uh, and uh, that makes it more difficult for us to help them. And in some cases, we just need to say, okay, well, uh, I don't think we're the best lawyer for you. Here's one of the things that, <clears throat> one of the things that people need is a certain degree of humility and openness to accept the fact that they don't, they may not know. Necessarily know what they don't know. Mm -hmm. They don't know. But one of the things my dear father said to me years ago, he said, Jeffrey, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. <laughs> and, and, you know, so there's certain people that they just say, yeah, I, just, I know what I want. I just want to fascinate cheap, I said, okay, well, if you want it cheap uh, and you want it fast, um, it might not be the best for you. And if they if they um, won't accept that, then they, they're probably not our, the, we're not probably not the best lawyer for them then. Okay, let me run through uh, two more other examples which would be helpful. One is a contractor from the USA. Our client was a residential home builder in the US and he specialized in environmental friendly construction techniques. He built multi-million dollar homes uh, using you know, solar panels, this kind of green technology, uh, this, that, the other thing. So that's great. So we helped him establish a construction company to do custom home building in Canada. And it was a bit challenging because you don't really need a lot of investment to do this. Uh, and my client said, well, I've got a truck, uh, which is worth $30,000. I've got a toolbox, which is worth maybe $8,000. But I, and some computers, which is worth a couple thousand dollars. But Jeffrey... You don't really need a lot of uh, investment for my business, but he'll can employ up to 25 or more subtrades at a time on each project um, in paying hundreds of thousands of dollars of wages. So we were able to bring him in uh, and get him a work permit as a NAFTA investor which normally has a fifty thousand uh, dollar kind of threshold, yeah, bright line, um, and then later PR as a skilled worker. 
So that was just another example. So what was the overall investment then in that particular situation? Um, Really, I mean, I strained to get something close to $50,000. But, you know, I included working capital. Of course. Because if you got payroll of hundreds of thousands of dollars, you need to have a certain amount of cash around. But, you know, you don't, for certain businesses, you really don't need a lot of money. No, no. And last, last example is a senior executive from Asia. So our client was a senior executive, and I'm talking pretty senior, like general, regional general manager for a country or regional president for a company, for a country, for four different multinational consumer goods manufacturers in Asia. Uh, and they're all household names. So he came to came to Canada, and uh, he was firstly looking at going into semi retirement. Um, but because of his background and abilities, we arranged for him to do consulting work for a Canadian manufacturing client that we had, uh, and they had world class technology, but they only sold in the North American market. So my guy did some my overseas client, did some consulting work for him, and said, hey, there's some great potential here. So he analyzed the firm, uh, realized his potential, so he bought over 75% of the company, huh. kept the original inventor uh, online. Uh, then he promptly was able to open up new markets in Europe, in Russia, in Asia, uh, so dramatically increased sales and profit uh, and employees using his uh, using his background he didn't know the technical side of these industrial products that they were selling but he knew about opening markets he knew about strategies and he knew how to uh, how to uh, ramp up sales so again we go back to our uh, assessment of assets and liabilities. He had certain assets which, which uh, were able to be used to take over a uh, a business which was good, good technology, but never met its potential because of international marketing. And it's so, interesting that you know when it comes to your your separation of types of. Um, you know, opportunities as, as counsel. A McDonald's version of, of the provision of legal services would never ever have the time to delve deep enough into that individual's background to really come up with this unique solution. Yeah, so it's, you know, Mark, this is the fun, fun part of what we do. Uh, and, but, you know, the other thing is, Underlying all of what we do uh, is the, the the privilege of being able to bring immigrants to Canada to establish themselves and their families and then create economic benefit for themselves, for their employees, and for the community. But, you know, in a world out there, especially at a time right now, when you've got uh, coronavirus, you've got people concerned about uh, the future, 
some people are losing hope and so on. Hope, like hopelessness, are both contagious, like viruses. Yeah. And you can choose who you want to be a carrier of. (laughs) And and so there are some lawyers who think their role in life is to point out what will go wrong. <laughs> uh, point out uh, this uh, the failure rates of business, this won't work, this won't work, and so on. And, um, and uh, you know, it's important to be a realist. But don't blindly jump on the <coughs> bandwagon of the negativists and say, you know... You're going to lose money, but, you know, at least you bring your family over here and so on. I mean, I refuse to do that. And sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, people do fail, but your chances of failure are going to be a lot more if you don't have any hope. Yeah. If you're just assuming that it's a doomed venture right from the beginning, you're never going to put the time and resources and, and energy and effort into making it a success. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to leave you with five practical yes, uh, tips. Yes, practical tips. That would be great. Okay, investing in um, Number one, spend time to learn the market and the culture. That may mean you come to Canada as a visitor or may mean you come to Canada as a student for six months, a year, or whatever. Take a, take a course. Come in some capacity to learn the market, learn the opportunities, gain contacts, uh, and the longer you can spend, the better. But at least spend a couple of weeks. Number two, get local independent advisors. And whether you're hiring a lawyer or business consultant, immigration consultant, uh, accountant, you should ensure that they're working for you. Now, lawyers have to disclose any conflict of interest. And they'll generally charge you a fee, whether by the hour or a set fee or some other basis. One of the things to beware of is just talking to business brokers or agents who don't charge you a fee for their time, but they only get paid if they close a deal. And as a result, they may filter the advice that they give to you so you hear only what you want to hear because that will move you close to a sale. And I guess this is where I I, I will pull an old saying that my father told me, which is essentially one that probably everybody in Canada knows, and that's you get what you pay for. Yes. Very very much true. But uh, one of my clients put it this way. Uh, I I needed to help help my client find a... uh, an employment lawyer because he had to, had a complex uh, employment problem to deal with. And I said, okay, uh, well, Dr. So-and-so, 
uh, there's three uh, three lawyers that I can recommend. This one is $500 an hour. This one is $300 an hour. And this one's fresh graduate for $200. I'll never forget what he told me. He said, Jeffrey, I can't afford free. I can't afford cheap advice. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, uh, and so uh, when you're dealing in a new country, uh, a new country and you don't know the system, you don't know the people and so on, every, every so much more so, it's important to you to get professional advice uh, and to, to be willing to pay for it. Okay, that's number two. Number three, study the business options. You spend time to learn the marketing culture, you got uh, local advisors, and who will come up with a number of different options. When you study the different options, <clears throat> then uh, you want to learn how does each business make money? Not just generally. Uh, I had one, one fellow, one client of mine, he was looking at buying a coffee business and um, he said, okay, uh, well, Jeffrey, I already got somebody to do a business plan for me. Uh, and I said, okay, uh, let me see it. And and so I read through the business plan. It was very thick. had all sorts of statistics. But I remember it said, well, coffee is the second most widely created, uh, created commodity in the world. Uh, in Canada... Uh, you know, X, uh, X hundred million cups, cups of coffee are drunk every day. Therefore, our business is going to be successful. <laughs> that's and a, I said, quite a what? leap. <laughs> uh, I said, that's quite a leap. So, so I took it and I looked at the location and I said, all right, this is what you want to do. In your location, there are 10, coffee, 10 car dealerships within a two-block radius. You can, we will do free, uh, free couponing to, well, sell coupons so that those, those uh, car dealerships can send their customers to sit down and have a coffee while they're waiting for the repair. There are 30 churches or religious, uh, religious groups within <coughs> 10 kilometer radius you can do couponing or invite these people to come to old meetings uh, in your coffee place in the evening which will then generate business and talk about cross couponing and strategic alliances and so on because a business plan should be a microeconomic exercise not a macroeconomic exercise good point the uh, and so study the business uh, and and you may want to study a couple of them before you choose the right ones yeah it's definitely a long term anyway. game it's not a it's not a quick um it's not a quick process it just takes time to do it right yes the next thing focus on the value not the price of the business 
Uh, and I, I think it was Warren Buffett who said, price is what you pay, value is what you get. In hmm. uh, another Buffett quote, it is far better to buy a wonderful company at a fair price than a fair company at a wonderful price. So when you're assessing potential businesses to purchase or invest in, focusing on the value can lead to a far better investment decision than just focusing on buying the cheapest business. And the last, uh, the last bit of advice that I have is this, persistence. There's a quote by Calvin Coolidge that I love. Nothing in this world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. <laughs> genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. And, and so when, when you're looking at coming to Canada, investing into a business and running, to, running a business, remember, you're not, you're not in a sprint. You're in a marathon. And, uh, and, uh, and, Hopefully, by choosing the right advisors along the way, they'll be with you. I've got clients of mine that I helped 25 years ago, and they still call me up for advice, and they still bring opportunities to me saying, hey, Jeffrey, what do you think of this? So um, you want to choose people uh, who uh, will be able to stand with you. That makes a lot of sense. Anyways, that's, uh, I don't know how, how long we've gone. That's, we've that's gone awesome. Well, well, yeah. Well, the, the reality but is it I takes, hope. like you said, just, just like it takes time to get things right when you're <clears throat> considering business immigration um, and coming through that process and that vehicle into Canada, it takes time to do a podcast on this topic as well to do it right. So I appreciate all of the insight that you've shared and, and just the time you've taken to give the practical application of these principles you're talking about. And I think they're really, really sound. So, Jeffrey, if, if someone um, listens through these series of, of episodes that, we, uh, that I'm going to uh, release here, um, and they say, wow, I, I, I really want to connect with this, uh, this low guy, what's the best way for them to reach you? Okay, uh, two ways. You can uh, email us at info info at canadavisalaw.com that's canada v-i-s-a-l-a-w dot com or you can call our office at 604-875-9338 and we normally begin with a one hour consultation where we will review your background and do the initial assessment process with you and then suggest some uh, different uh, different options that uh, that you'd be able to do. And besides myself, 
uh, there's uh, two other lawyers that we have, uh, Robert Lowe and Stan Liu. Uh, and uh, we also have three immigration consultants on staff as well, uh, all of whom would be able to uh, assist you uh, with different kinds of things. Normally what I do is I get the background and then we'll see, uh, we'll see who would be the most appropriate uh, to handle the case. Awesome. That sounds great. Well, thank you so very much, Jeffrey, for taking this time and for laying everything out so clearly. Uh, it's just been a wonderful, wonderful series here, and it's a little bit sad that it's coming to an end. But thanks so much, and, and I know we'll probably have you and your team back, uh, one of your members of your team back in the future. So thanks so much. And thank, thank you, Mark. As I say, Mark, you've got to be one of the most innovative uh, lawyers out there. I mean, lawyers are notoriously conservative and notoriously back behind uh, behind the time. It's interesting. We, we uh, are late adopters, uh, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, but, but uh, you know, uh, I, you've been an early adopter into technology and, and really being a benefit to so many different uh, immigration lawyers, immigration consultants, and clients, and really uh, want to thank you for all that you're doing. You're very, very welcome. All right, my friend, we will talk to you. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Okay, sounds good. Thanks a lot. Yeah, bye. Well, as I alluded to, this episode was a little bit longer than most, but it was chock full of so much helpful information. Often we as immigration lawyers are constantly looking for just another tool to, to put in our tool bag when we are advising clients. And when we're in a world where it is becoming increasingly difficult for our clients to qualify through express entry, sometimes these avenues are exactly what um, is going to open up doors to Canada that may not otherwise exist for our clients. So hopefully this episode was useful for all of you. I was so grateful to have Jeffrey Lowe join me. And um, I just want to thank all of the listeners, as always, for tuning in, for sharing the love. I encourage you to go over to iTunes and, and leave, a, uh, leave a review, or if you're over on Spotify or all of the many other areas that I've now started spinning out these podcasts to, um, it's amazing the reach now that they're getting. If you want to join me, please send me an email to mholthy at holthylaw.com. And if you've got a great idea for a podcast episode, let me know. I'd love to have you join me. I'm always looking for awesome lawyers who are practicing the right way, who are giving back, and truly understand the value of, of just... Um, paying it forward. In other words, when you yourself are receiving uh, just blessings in your life and the benefits from your position as a lawyer or whatever situation you're in, and you just want to have an opportunity to kind of pay it forward now to someone else, that's what this podcast is all about. It's not about self-aggrandizement. It's not about, um, you know, uh, trying to, uh, you know, to increase the revenues in our practices, although that's a nice a side effect. The reason that these podcasts exist is to give help to people who need it most. And right now, when I look at the target audience, a lot of it is immigration lawyers and um, and other representatives. And I know that they benefit tremendously from the information, the direction, the guidance that is provided by the awesome guests that I have joined me. So thank you so much for tuning in. I'm signing off here. This is Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. And I want to wish you guys safety health as we're navigating this crazy world of COVID-19. 
Take care, everyone.